there's a lot of interesting things that have been happening lately, and I'd like to talk about them, but especially in the context of this question. Why is it, when you look at the Geula, the redemption, you know, why does it seem to go so slow? You know, it looks like it goes forwards and then backwards, forwards and then backwards. It seems to creep along very, very slowly. <clears throat> so I thought that was important to understand, uh, which I really want to explain. And, and some of the, what's called the biblical or historical antecedents of this, <clears throat> in terms of what is happening, uh, especially in terms of a messianic process. And that's really what the Shia is all about. <clears throat> the Geula redemption always happens very slow. So the first thing you have to understand is because it depends what's the principle behind the redemption. If the redemption would happen miraculously, then it would happen much quicker. But if it's going to happen what's called Ayide Teva, naturally, which is what's happening, then it goes much slower. So that's a fundamental difference between the two methodologies. And what we're experiencing is that the redemption itself, which uh, is basically in progress, is happening, but it happens very slowly. And the, the question is, what's the logic of that? Of why? <clears throat> Whether the gu'ul or the redemption happens naturally depends on how the Jews bring about the rectification of the Bria, of the creation. If the Jews bring about the rectification of the Bria, the universe, creation, then the uh, gu'ul happens what's called through uh, it happens through miracle. If, it, if, if the gula comes about as a result of mitzvahs, which means that the Jews did a tremendous amount of mitzvahs, then the redemption itself will happen uh, basically miraculously. And as a result of that, of course, it will go much quicker. However, if the Jews basically bring the redemption through suffering, uh, then what happens is, is the redemption happens much slower and it happens in a natural way, or at least it appears to be natural. Of course, we know that nothing is natural, but like I say, but it appears to be natural. You know, um, we just passed Hanukkah, and it appears that the Jews won the victory over the Greeks in a natural way. Of course, when you analyze it, you say to yourself, well, it's impossible, because how can 10,000 uh, Jews overcome an army of over 125,000 battle-hardened Greek soldiers who were formerly from the army of Alexander who had conquered the entire world. Yet, uh, you know, there were no miracles in that sense, so it seems to happen, have happened naturally. So therefore, what we're looking at is a redemption that happens in a natural way. Okay. So that's an important idea. Now, if you take a look, there, are three, there seem to be three basic arenas. Uh, in terms of what's happening, uh, in terms of the uh, messianic advancement. Um, the first battle is the uh, battle in America itself. <coughs> now we know who, who uh, Donald Trump is, 
which I have mentioned so many times, that he is, uh, he, he's what's called the Tov Shebeisav, the good part of Esav, okay, who has come back to realize, uh, the, the, uh, to actualize the whole concept of that Rav Yavoy Tzoyer, that the older will serve the younger. And that's really what's happening. And, and of course, he's doing an incredible job which uh, it's amazing that in the beginning when he ran, people felt he was an anti-Semite. And I said, uh, excuse me, uh, people out of your mind, he's gonna be the greatest president in the history of Israel. And he, of course, he's, he's doing even more stuff that we even imagined that he would do, you know. So that's clearly consistent with that idea that he's really the Tov Shebeisav, the good part of Esav. And he is battling the establishment, whoever you want to call them. You can call them the liberals, you can call them the democrats, you know. Um, you can call them um, the progressives, whatever. The, these people, the establishment, uh, these are the Rosh of. And there's an incredible battle going on. Because what Trump is doing, obviously, is he is incredibly advancing the process a messianic process, uh, and he's enabling Israel to to get back their land. As we know, Esav in the Torah says, that which is yours be yours, and he is consistently doing that with everything he's done so far. Um, so that's the first battle that we're watching. Now, interesting, and that, that battle only takes place at the end. What is interesting is that <clears throat> Uh, as we see so far, uh, that battle has been going on, as Trump himself said, I think it was 19 minutes after he won the presidency, they declared that they're going to impeach him. I mean, it was just astounding. Um, he, he wrote a letter to the Congress. It's a beautiful letter, you know. And uh, he, he writes these things, you know, that uh, that's all they think about is impeachment. Because obviously they have nobody to rival him and they have nobody with any normal policies. So the only thing they can do to the guy is smear him by impeaching him. But of course it's not gonna work. In any case, that's the first fascinating scene that is going on in terms of America, which is really Esau. Okay, uh, now we know of course that <clears throat> his job, Trump's job, as I mentioned any time, is to assist Israel in terms of their tikkun by giving them back and allowing them to develop in so many different ways. The second job of uh, Trump is to defend uh, the Jews uh, against the enemies of the Jewish people, whether it be the UN, whether it be Europe, uh, whether it be Iran, which he's doing an incredible job, especially in terms of the news today and so on. You know, uh, but uh, that, that's what he's also doing. He's also making America great, and the primary reason of that is, of course, the greater America becomes, then the, their credibility becomes greater. Uh, so when, when Trump, of course, goes out of his way to do things for the Jewish people, then everybody wants to get behind America. They want to become friends with America. And, uh, of course, that's what they want to do. In any case, um, we also watch, interesting, that the Democrats seem to be destroying themselves. And this is all Hajjokha protests. What is amazing is that we would imagine that uh, the House, which is a larger-than-life body, would have enough seichel, 
enough intelligence to realize that what they're doing is so blatantly obvious to everybody that it's a vendetta against Trump. There's no justice involved. It's obviously the whole thing is co complete violation of due process and so on. But it doesn't seem to bother them. Well, they don't seem to really aware of it. But the main idea, of course, I believe, is that they will suffer terribly at the polls as a result of that. In any case, so that's the first area. Second area is Iran. Now, Iran is suffering in two different ways, which is interesting. We know that there's a medrash with Iran, the medrash of the Yalkut. And what it says there is that in the end of time, actually the language of the medrash is that in the week that Ben David Bo, doesn't mean literally the week, it could mean the seven year cycle of Shemitah. But in any case, in that time, uh, it says that Poras, which is Iran, will war with Arabia, and Arabia will then consult with Edom, which is America, and they are, they are going to try to destroy the world. And the world will be incredibly anxious, of course, and uh, uh, what will happen then is a bus call, a divine voice will come out and say, uh, the time of your redemption has arrived and we see therefore that the uh, attempt of Iran to dominate the world will be the last war that Israel has to face uh, without uh, going into Goygamogoy but that's basically the end and we see that Iran is collapsing and of course due to Trump uh, the economy is collapsing you know they, they're probably holding very close to bankruptcy. And the second thing is they are now, because of their incredibly absurd policies of giving money to everybody else but their own people, there's enormous amount of demonstrations all around Iran. That's very dangerous for the mullahs because once that climate of rebellion takes hold, then you never know they may overthrow all the clerics, all the mullahs. So we have demonstrations uh, all over Iran. But what's happened also, uh, two days ago actually, uh, is an incredible event where this guy Suleiman, Suleimani, I should say, uh, the major guy, uh, one of the major heads of Iranian uh, the military, the Republican Guard and so on, you know, has been assassinated by Trump. That's an amazing concept because we now witness Trump going to war, that's really what it is, when you assassinate the head of the uh, army, that's war. He's now going to war with Iran. And uh, as a result of that, uh, you know, uh, that, that has been a severe setback to Iran. And uh, this is a major advancement forward in the beginning of the end of Iran. What is interesting is that just like the Rabbani Shalom has taken out all the Arab nations, many of them, without Israel having in, in any way to in, be involved in that conflict. God is sparing Israel the necessity of having to go to war with these people. God is taking them out himself. We see that the Arab Spring, uh, you know, in terms of all the Arab countries, Iraq and uh, Syria and uh, Lebanon, which is now falling apart. Then you have, of course, uh, you have um, Libya and Egypt uh, and uh, all just really collapsing and so on. Uh, what Durosham seems to be doing is taking out Iran. Same idea, without Israel having to be involved at all. So it actually seems to be, it actually seems to be happening, you see.
um, so that's this is a very important uh, movement forward that Iran is uh, really on its last legs. Iran has a very big problem because they can't start up with America. Because if America wanted, they could take out Iran in three days, four days. So what can they really do? If they kill Americans, they know that Trump is not like, it's unlike any other president. He will destroy them. That's what Trump will do. He will not tolerate that type of behavior uh, against American lives. And they know that. So in order to say, they have to save face or they look terrible in front of the entire world. You know, their major guy, general, was assassinated by America. And I, I also just heard that America told the American army in Iraq to go on the offensive, to kill the I Iranian soldiers that are in Iraq. America wants to remove them from Iraq, which is really, when you think about it, it's an act of war against Iran. So it's not just Soleimani, but it's now a war against all military soldiers, advisors, or whatever, personnel in, 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 in Iraq. America wants to throw them out of Iraq. So uh, it's, I'm, I, you know, hopefully Iran will respond by doing something really dumb, you know, and really do something that Trump will take a tremendous uh, offensive against them and that incredibly so will remove Iran from the uh, the terror terrorist brotherhood that that's really when you think about it, that's incredible could you imagine a world without Iran be incredible that means the real sponsor of terrorism would be destroyed so uh, imagine the Hezbollah would be destroyed because there's no money right so you have Hezbollah being destroyed then you have uh, Hamas you know and you have many other uh, allegiances to Iran they can't operate without Iran sponsoring them uh, it would be ushering a tremendous uh, period of, of um, uh, peace in the world which is exactly what has to happen before a messianic era you know now a third area which is fascinating is Israel they have failed to put together a coalition twice which is historical never happened before Netanyahu, who was a prime minister, has been indicted. Uh, and that's the first time a sitting prime minister has been indicted. And therefore, what we're really seeing is the fall of the heir of Rav. That's really what's happening. You know, and um, that itself is a very important stage. Because in order to really return the Jews to Torah and mitzvahs and so on, then you, you need to get rid of the heir of Rav. And like I said many times, you know, as long as uh, Netanyahu is, is prime minister, the Jews in Israel will never do tshuva. And, and that's a, therefore, it's very important that the whole government be removed. And that's happening and so on. But it happens in stages, you see, and I'm going to talk about that. So therefore, we see in three different areas, each one pivotal to a messianic process, they're all happening. So that gives a person tremendous hope, you see, that it's actually happening, and it's all happening simultaneously, you see. Now, I had mentioned a long time ago that there is a Zohar. It's a Raya Mehemna. It's a Zohar that says the following, that 
Just like in Egypt, uh, they were there 210 years or whatever. Um, therefore, before the end of time, which is the English year, 2240, or the year 6000, 210 years before that, you will have the entry of Mashiach bin David. And therefore, you will have Tchir which is resurrection of the dead. Now, if you subtract 210 from 2240, that is equal to 2030, which is 10 years from now. Uh, it just became now uh, January uh, 4th, uh, 2020. It's only 10 years left. That's the reason why you're seeing such an enormous acceleration. You actually have, it's like three different areas in the world which are tremendously connected to the messianic process. And you're seeing them, uh, what do you call it? You're seeing them all together uh, and they all seem to be converging. So, therefore, <clears throat> this year should be sh shape up to be an incredible year for an advancement of the messianic process. You see. But what is the process itself? <clears throat> the Chazal described the Messianic process, or right before that, as Chevli Mashiach, which is the birth pangs of the Mashiach. Well, what does that mean? It means that, if you, if you know, the, when, a woman, when a woman is about to give birth, you have a child or an infant, an embryo, whatever you want to call it, in the, in the uterus and so on, and it enjoys a whole different world. And when the child is born, it enters, it enters a completely different scenario, uh, which is called, of course, uh, outside. Uh, and of course, to the, to the child, it must be a shock that this happens, you know. In many ways, that's exactly what you can compare it to. That's really the model. We live in a world that has complete, tremendous amount of hester, tremendous amount of a concealment of the divine presence, a tremendous amount of concealment of spirituality. And in the messianic era, it is a thousand times more than we have now. In fact, it's almost incomprehensible, which I've spoken about in the past and so on. So that, the, the, that is akin to, you know, a child being born from inside the uterus or womb and coming out and seeing a whole different existence. The same idea. We are now as if we are in a fog, as if we are in the womb. And the emergence of that would be the Messianic era. So therefore, there's a concept called Hevli Mashiach. It's birth pangs. It takes time for the infant to emerge and come out into a different world. The same thing. Uh, and that happens in stages. The same thing happens now, is that this messianic process happens in stages. And this is a very important idea. Do not expect it to go from beginning to end, you know, in one week. Not at all. Uh, it could take, it does take a long time, you know. The critical thing, of course, is that uh, it, it, there are stages. Uh, and there are stages, therefore, of the redemption itself. What I would say is, if you want to compare it, you could say that it's two steps forward and one step back. This is the way it proceeds. So there's always forward and a back motion. And that's really what we're seeing. Okay, and I will explain. But anyway, this is, what, how, this is how the Hevli Mashiach acts. Two steps forward and one step, step back. <clears throat> Where do we see this? 
Now, what I want to explain is why does that have to be that way? Why does the Messianic process have to proceed slowly where it actually goes back to a certain extent and then moves forward? <clears throat> so for that, you have, there are certain ideas which you have to become familiar with, which I'm sure in many ways everybody is. <clears throat> Life is very challenging. What does that mean? Life is a game of survival. You want to survive, you have to fulfill your needs, okay, uh, and, and, and you have to satisfy your needs, and then you also want not just survive, but you also want to prosper. And therefore, every human being looks for uh, stability and predictability. Every human wants to have an environment that is stable and predictable, where it knows that within this type of environment, right, it can meet its needs and survive. That's human nature, which is interesting, okay? And what a person can do is that no matter what the environment is, he can accommodate it. He's flexible enough to, even within that environment, even if that environment is very difficult, he can survive and certainly try to flourish. That's what a person is always trying to do. Now what's interesting is that therefore, any type of change, any type of change, okay, produces anxiety. Why? Because a person must have some type of stability. Therefore, change produces anxiety. Because a person doesn't know if the next environment, after the change, he will be able to survive. He will be able to prosper and flourish. And therefore, any kind of change in a person's life is anxiety-provoking. You know, what's interesting is the greatest change of all is redemption, is Geula. As a result of that, we can expect that people are going to become very anxious, actually even in a redemption. Because nobody knows what will be after the redemption. Nobody really knows. So the redemption itself, which everybody to a certain extent looks forward to, is probably the greatest anxiety producer. And as a result of that, it will actually welcome all kinds of resistance. That's what happens when the Gaula is imminent. People don't know what to do. You see, it's an interesting concept. But human nature must have stability and predictability. You see, even people would rather see the continuity of an evil regime, right, than a change to something else that they don't know will happen. Because at least with the evil regime, they have sort of like navigated their way, they have played around with the system so they can, they can manipulate it, you see? Because they've, uh, they've, uh, they've accommodated themselves to it. But in a, in, in a situation which is absolutely different, everybody gets nervous because they don't know what the future holds. And like I said, this is even true of the Geula, the redemption. Where do you see that? It's interesting to watch. You see it in Egypt, Mitzrayim. There's a famous Chazal where it says, uh, where the Torah says, uh, when they left Egypt, Chamushim Olum Mitzrayim. Right? Chamushim is armed. But Rashi says, that really means one-fifth. Rashi says, and it's based on a Medrash, that 80% of the Jewish people died in Egypt in the plague, the Makkah of Choshech, darkness. So the Egyptians shouldn't see that the Jews die and therefore they would never let the Jews out, you see. <clears throat> and the question is why? 
why would so many people die? And therefore, what is interesting is that uh, what did these people do or want? These 80% that died. <clears throat> what they wanted is interesting. They said, listen, the main concept of redemption is to be free men, not to be slaves. And God has accomplished that for us. You know, we will never be slaves in Egypt because Egyptians are frightened of the Jews. So then why can't we remain in Egypt? We're free men, right? We can do what we want. We can pursue whatever desires we have, religiosity, you know. It's not that they wanted to deny God. On the contrary, let's be religious. But we want to do it in Egypt. You see, that's what they wanted. God, of course, said no. It's not enough to be free men in Egypt. That's not what the purpose is. You must be an independent nation altogether dedicated to serving me. You see. But that's what the Jews in Egypt thought. You see, or at least 80% thought that and so on. Not that they wanted to deny a life with a, without a God and so on. No. On the contrary. But they want to remain in Egypt. Why? See. And the answer is because Egypt was stable and predictable. They were there for hundreds of years. They knew exactly how to negotiate, right? How to navigate the system, as they say, in Egypt, right? And they were comfortable with it. So they said, listen, the main thing is we want to become free. We don't want to be slaves anymore. You see, that's what they said. So we know the system. We can navigate it. We can prosper and survive. That's it. We want to stay here. But the amazing thing is that this, we are talking about the redemption itself. You see, this is the redemption, the Gula. They witnessed how many? Because it happened in Choshech that they died. That means they witnessed eight Makas before that. And they saw clearly the power of God. You see, so we're talking about the Gula itself. Yet they still resisted the redemption to the extent where God said, Okay, you don't want to leave Egypt, right? Then you will not survive Egypt. And of course God took them, but later on he brings them back in Gilgulam, which is reincarnations and so on. So it's not like they disappeared. They just never made it in Egypt and so on, you know. But the incredible thing is that they resisted even the redemption, the Gaula itself. Wow. What a fear, you know. And, you know, uh, um, and, and you, we, would, we would imagine that when they were in the midst of the redemption, the ghoul itself, right? You could imagine that they said, this is fabulous, you know? But that's how strong the desire is of a person to maintain the status quo. They, they want to remain in the same place because that is stability, that is predictability. That's how I can survive. You put me in some new place, I don't know what's going to be. You see? Now, it was interesting. What do you mean, what's going to be? You know, can it be bad? God is destroying Egypt. You see? But what's interesting is that, in a certain sense, they said, wait a minute. <clears throat> you know? It's true he's destroying Egypt, but guess what? Paro is still defying the word of God. He is still defying Moshe Rabbeinu. You see? So we don't know, even if there's a redemption, you know, we don't know what power is going to do. Uh, they didn't see Marcus Bechiris yet because they died in the plague before Marcus Bechiris, the, the, the killing of the firstborn. 
they were they they would they, they died in the the, the plague of Chushach, darkness. So they didn't see this. You see. So what they did see is that no matter what, how many plagues it bring against Egypt, right? He doesn't want to let them out. Uh, and so that gives them what's called a chalisha, a tremendous weakening of emunah in the Rebbeinu And they didn't know about what was going to happen with Makas Bechiris, with the uh, killing of the firstborn, and so on, <clears throat> you see. So because they had that vulnerability, that weakness, where they saw Pari was defying God, therefore, in a certain sense, right, the need for stability and predictability kicked in. You see, because they said, "Look, we don't know what's going to be." And the interesting thing is that even if, even if what power takes us out, right, where are we going to go? That means over two and a half million people are going to go into a wilderness, right? How in the world is God going to support two and a half million people? You can't grow anything there. You see, so that becomes a major test of emuna, of faith in God, and be talking. That was yet to come because they knew that God wanted them out of Egypt, right? So this test was yet to come. So they said to themselves, can God pull this off? You see? They, they, in some sense, there was a doubt because if Parah can still defy God, you know, so there's a, there's a problem here, you see? So can God pull it off where he can support two and a half million people, Jews, in a desert where there's no food? There's no housing, there's nothing there. See, all of this came together with a Jewish refusal, we don't want to leave. That's how strong it was. So the Barsham said, you know, if you, because you don't, want to, you, you don't want to rely on me, that I can keep all of you alive and bring you through a desert, you know, and therefore none of you will ever see it. In a certain sense, it was a midah keneged midah. But the upshot of all this is what? is that they actually defied, resisted the ge'ul itself. It's a very important lesson. That's how important it is for a person to maintain, as I said, a tremendous stability and, and a, a, predictab a predictability, you see. Because no. remember, you know, when you see change, you get worried, you get anxious for several reasons. First of all, by a redemption. First of all, how do I know evil will be destroyed? Number one. Number two, how do I know that evil will be destroyed totally? Number three, how do I know evil will be destroyed permanently? You know, maybe they'll come back. They always seem to come back, you know? Number four, you know, even if good replaces evil, you know, how do I know it will be really all good? How do I know it will be permanent? You see, all these weigh on a person's mind, even though he's witnessing or in the middle of a redemption process. So we see that in the Torah itself, we had the incident where the Jews died. You see? Now, besides that, besides that, uh, besides that difficulty, this is one of the reasons why Geula has to go slow. Why? Uh, because if you rush it, if you change the world too quick, people will resist the Geula. They will resist the redemption itself, <coughs> which is exactly what happened. But in Egypt, it was worse 
because 80% resisted it. What was left? 20%? Do you imagine only 20% of the Jews went out of Egypt and received the Torah? 80% died. That's an incredible, that, that, that is such a, an enormous amount of people that didn't want to leave Egypt. You see? And that was because it was happening so quick. You see, one mark after the other, even though from the beginning to the end, it did take quite a while, a year. But what's a year to go from slaves in Egypt to completely free and living on miracles all day long in a desert, in a wilderness? You see. So therefore, what the Rosham must do, since we know that the redemption will happen through Teva, natural means, okay, and not miraculous, is he has to go slow. So people can get used to, to the idea, right? Oh, evil is falling. All of evil is falling. And it's going to be permanent, you see? So people get used to, to the idea. And as time goes on, they can adjust. And then all of a sudden, good enters. And it really seems to be great. And it, keeps, it seems to be permanent. That's one of the reasons why the Geula takes time. Because it's, since it's happening naturally, you cannot frighten people because people will get frightened because everybody seeks some type of stability and predictability this is human nature and that's one of the reasons why the gula can take several years and as time goes on people will see that it's really working it's a very important idea you see because you do not want to frighten the people so it has to take time you see okay now another reason yeah um, were people given the plan in Mitzrayim? No. Some people, well, maybe. You mean Marcus Bechiris? My question is if people know, <clears throat> how strong is that will to, has that uh, insistence on the status quo if people know the game plan? They don't know the game plan. In fact, there's an interesting Orachaim. Even when, when Lula is already here. Meaning, the Geulah is here, let's say the Gedolim say, this is the Geulah, then already there's kind of a sweet, like, oh, this is the Geulah, this is so, so. People won't believe it. We, have, yeah, we are in Golas for thousands of years, you know. Just because Gedolim say there's a Geulah, you know. You know how many times Gedolim predicted the Kates? That's predicted. They say, this guy is Meshach Ben Yosef. No, but that destroys their credibility. What's the difference? If they say it, or well, this guy is it. People have to see it. That's, that's why there's an interesting Rambam. The Rambam says, how will we know who the Mashiach is? You know, how will we know? You know, it was, a, it was an incredible thing that the Jews accepted Moshe Rabbeinu's word. Okay, he used the right terminology, whatever, you know. But the interesting thing is that, why did they believe altogether that he was the Mashiach? You know, after so many hundreds of years. Imagine Mashiach is in America and he says, okay, everybody, let's pack up, right? Let's go to Eretz Yisrael, right? You know what everybody's going to tell him? Excuse me, you know, where'd you come from? You know what I'm saying? How do we know you're Mashiach? So the Ramam says, the only way we know the person is the real Mashiach is the man never fails. Never. Like Yosef, Everything that Moshe did, God made successful. You see, that's how you know, because he never fails. You see, now that type of a guy has credibility. You see, 
and everybody's waiting for him to fail. See, because deep down, many, most people don't want the redemption. They're already ensconced in their real estate, in their bank accounts. They have a good life, two cars, or whatever it is, you know. It's like the, the famous, uh, you know, it's really a joke, where two people, a man and his wife, were, were talking. And the husband said to his wife, he said, uh, you know, we got big problems. What's the problem, he asked. Well, we own real estate. We have a big bank account. You know, we have a great job. I have three factories and so on. What's the problem then? Problem is if the Mashiach comes, right? We have to leave it and go to Eretz Israel. That's what, she, that's what he said to her. So she said, why are you worried? What do you mean why I'm worried? Because that's what's going to happen. So she said to them, don't worry. God saved us from Ammon. He saved us from Parai. He's going to save us from the Mashiach. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that is the attitude. <clears throat> you know, of course, somebody who has a lot of problems, of course, he'll be glad. But many people don't want that because they don't want that type of change. So in order to do this, God has to do it slow and get people used to it, you see. And therefore, it proceeds very slowly. So it takes time. So essentially what Hashem is doing is he's, there's, he's, he's preparing for the fact that certain people, he wants as many people as possible in the Mashiach, and yet he doesn't want people to kind of ruin it, even though they were Zoha, but they're kind of ruin it by that last minute yeah, he doesn't want so he this. He says, okay, so let me read them slowly. Slowly. And you'll see it actually works. Yeah, that he's actually successful. Whatever he does must succeed. You see? See, because when the Mashiach comes, there is no such thing as Hevli Mashiach. He's here. It works. You know, it, it, there's no longer stages of the redemption. There are certain stages in that sense, but there's no two steps forward and one step back. It's all forward. Once that time arrives, it's all for it. What's see. the cost of one step back again? What was that? What was the cost? Well, I'm going to go into that. Okay. Why there is a step back. But this is all before he comes. In any case, now, let's examine why is it that there is this two steps forward and one step back while the process is ongoing. So, one idea, I already said one idea, is that it can't take place too fast. Or it's going to be a tremendous amount of resistance because people are just frightened by that type of radical change in such a short amount of time. But the other idea is that because the Sutton is going to say, wait a minute, you can't bring the Gula because there's still claims against the Jewish people. They still have sins that they have to atone for, you know? So how, how do you do that? So therefore, the Roshim says, I'm going to bring the redemption, but in order to satisfy justice, Din, right? Which is what the Sutton is claiming, right? I'm going to have to go back at certain times, you see, and undo certain things or put certain obstacles in the path. Because the Din says, why should there be a Gula? You see, so that's our idea also. It's because the, the, the Roshim must satisfy the Din, ultimately. So if there's a Din, a claim against the Jews, that, in a certain sense, offers resistance and stops the forward motion. In fact, we see also by Avram Avinu, even though God promised him Eretz Yisrael, it says, we are Kanani Oz right? Why does it say that? Because they, as this will be the next reason, uh, because 
the evil has to have its due. You know, you can't just wrench evil out and destroy it. It has to have used up all its merits, and then you could destroy it. And we see that, that even though Avraham Avinu was promised there at Israel, he couldn't take it over. Why? Because the Canaanites still had merits, whatever they were, in order to hold on to Eretz Yisrael. You see? So that's a very important concept, that evil has to have its due based on its merits. And only when they will have used up all the merits, then you could annihilate them. And then, of course, the Gula can proceed totally. So we have, the Jews have to atone and God wants to satisfy the judgment and therefore all of a sudden there's a backward motion. Uh, we have the concept that evil has to have its due based on its merit, you see. Also, as a requirement which I had mentioned a while back, if God is going to bring the redemption through he, because the Jews have suffered and so on, then what he's going to do, as I mentioned a couple of shurim ago, he's going to bring a tremendous rise in evil. So when he now declares, Enod Mavadoi, it's going to be against an enemy which is so incredibly strong, and that itself will magnify the greatness and the strength of God. I had mentioned that a while back. That's the concept of Tigbur Surah, the proliferation of evil at the end of time see because since God is now going to show who he is then the greater the enemy then the, that is the greatest greatest demonstration of the awesome power of God so that also takes time at the end of time you see there's also another reason and that is that like in Egypt you know even though Paroi was saying no to Moshe one after another you know there is a concept called bitochem that if the Jews had to have once they see the operation of these nisim they have to have trust in God that he's not doing this for naught that as a result of all this they will be redeemed and that trust in many ways God needs to push it forward totally you see it by Nachshim ben Aminodov when the Red Sea all of a sudden they're up against the Red Sea the Egyptians are on the other side. There was a tremendous army, the, the greatest chariots, you know, 600 chariots or whatever and so on, you know. And all of a sudden, they have the Red Sea, the sea in front of them. What do they do? You see? So Moshe Rabbeinu said, God said to Moshe, don't worry about it, just move into the sea, which was astounding, you know. It's like, you know, I, how in the world can that possibly be? And nobody was moving. And finally, Nachshon ben Aminodov, he jumped into the sea. And that, that display of tremendous bitochen, trust in God, you see, that is what, uh, that, that's, that merit uh, allowed the sea to split. For whatever reason that the Bansham needed that merit, uh, that bitochen that Nachshon had, maybe encouraged others and so on, and that merit is what uh, enabled the sea to split. So that's a very important idea. What we see, therefore, is that redemption happens in stages. It doesn't go one, two, three. You know where you really see this? Imagine, the Rebbeinu talks to Moshe Rabbeinu by the burning bush, the snare. And he's, he says, you're the Mashiach. I designate you the one to take them out. Great. What does Moshe do? Fine, he goes to Egypt. And he does the miracle of the snake and the staff and so on, you know. And Pilate tells him, basically, get lost. 
not only get lost, but the Jews are lazy, you see? So what I'm going to do is make all the Jews gather their own straw to make the bricks. So it comes out an amazing thing, that after the Mashiach came to Egypt, it got worse. Now I ask you, how disheartening is that? It was terrible. In fact, it was so terrible that Moshe Rabbeinu went, went back to God and he said, I don't stand. Where's the gula? And if there's, you don't intend to do the gula, what are you asking me to take him out? Even he did not understand, you see, what was going on. And the Bansham had tremendous tightness, you know, claims against Moshe and so on. <clears throat> but what do we see? That the first stage is the snare, is the burning bush. The second stage is the reversal of the first. When Moshe Rabbeinu is not the Mashiach, not only that, Paro tells him to get lost, not only that, Paro makes it much worse for the Jews. You see? So what do we see? That after the Messianic process starts, it goes in reverse. You see? That's what we see. That's clearly. And not only that, every single Makkah, ultimately Paro said, no. Wait a minute. I'm, uh, Moshe Rabbeinu says, wait, I'm the Mashiach. And the Rabbanshim said, right, that the Jews are going to leave Egypt. He told me that at the snare. Yet every single Makkah, Paris says, no. So that's another obstacle. Every Makkah was accompanied initially by, after the Makkah, no. So each one of these things, what? The Jews were incredibly disappointed and dismayed. Could you imagine what kind of test that is? when you have somebody who is the Mashiach and who is acting like the Mashiach and is successful as the Mashiach because he's bringing all these miracles, blood, frogs, and so on, yet Paroi defies God. <clears throat> so we're not talking about somebody who says, who says, says he's the Mashiach. He's demonstrating he's the Messiah. Mom is demonstrating, yet nothing works. Could you imagine how the Jews felt Every time Paris said no, right? It's another failure. And not only that, what really worked is in the end, when they finally destroyed so much of Egypt, they're by the Red Sea, and all of a sudden, they see a resurgence of evil coming to get them by Chris Yamsov, by the Red Sea. Can you imagine where they say to themselves, I don't stand this. What are we doing here? You know what I'm saying? We, you can't seem to get rid of the Egyptians. You know? It's like crazy glue. You can't get it off your hand. You know, you know what I'm saying? I think that's what it is. Anyway, you know? Uh, so the question is, how do we understand this? So what do you see from this? Do not think that the messianic process will go smoothly and rapidly. It doesn't, for the reasons that I mentioned, and so on. There will be what's called fits and starts. Fits and starts, you know, rather starts and fits, whatever it works and so on, you know. Again, because <clears throat> there are reasons for this. People have to, like I said, the reason that I mentioned why uh, these things it moves forward two steps and goes back uh, one step and so on, you know. Uh, and this is with Moshe Rabbeinu, who is the Mashiach, you know. And he demonstrated it over and over again. Yet it still doesn't go forward smoothly, you see. This is what happens. So in today's time, what are we watching, right? We are watching the same thing. It goes forward, right? Trump is elected, which is unbelievable. 
you see and what he's done for the Jewish people is beyond uh, I mean, you know it's just beyond credible you know incre uh, it's just incredible you know uh, and so on which we all know you know the uh, the embassy move and Israel now has Jerusalem as the capital and now the Golan is good and the whole uh, territories are good and so on you know and he's, he's killing BDS what, what he's doing is just incredible you know one would think that he's Jewish you know because <clears throat> he's literally doing for the Jews what nobody has ever done before in terms of the American presidents but there's an obstacle who's the obstacle the house all of a sudden they win the house and guess what they are after him you see that that's the obstacle that's the two steps forward and one step back but at least we know one thing it still has to move forward two steps so it'll be a good resolution but it is quite disheartening to watch this you see then we have Iran you know who's back and forth right <clears throat> it's back and forth the same idea and now we see in Eretz Israel again the fall of the year of Rav right what does that mean all of a sudden there's an election in April and Netanyahu fails to put together a government that's a move forward you see but you know he tried but the the obstacle is that wait a minute he's gonna start again he fails again in September you see but nope he is now indicted you see and then there's a guy called <coughs> Gideon Sa who's running against him you know and all of a sudden Netanyahu wins and not Sa which by the way is nowhere near as bad as it looks people don't understand the incredible thing about what Gideon Sa did is that um, you know first of all people don't understand Netanyahu did not become prime minister he just re, he just uh, employed his candidacy for prime minister but he's not prime minister he's got to he's got to run uh, for elections in March you see that's the first thing they don't understand uh, and so on didn't make him prime minister the, the second thing which is really in many ways very interesting okay is that Saar got 30 almost 30 percent of the vote that's that's that that should have been impossible Netanyahu is a legend in Israel it's amazing uh, you would have expected that a guy like Saar right would only get one percent of the Likud vote instead he got 30 to me that's a ness you see even though it wasn't enough but 30% but the most important thing forward for Saar is that he is now internationally known nobody ever heard of this guy a year ago right and now he's all over everybody in Israel knows about him right the Washington Post the New York Times they all have articles about him you know there's even an article that came out in England somewhere and said watch Saar because he's the next guy he's known now and that's basically what's the two steps forward but there was a setback like like the messianic process always has a setback right and Netanyahu won but that didn't make him prime minister and remember he failed twice to put a coalition together not only that he's indicted and the polls all the polls coming out show that the opposite party Gantz is winning over Netanyahu so the amazing thing is Netanyahu is that he could is endangering themselves 
altogether as being a party, you know, who has a coalition. They may have lost the election, you see, and they'll sit in the opposition, which is basically a cemetery. It's a political cemetery. That's what the opposition is. So <clears throat> how they can think that he's going to win, it's, it's just amazing. It's very likely, and it could be, that, that, that Likud will lose the elections, you see. Now, assuming that even if he wins, he's got to put a coalition together, you see? And he already failed twice, and he's indicted. There's a lot of people that are now against him being prime minister, you know? Uh, so when you look at this, he has won by a long shot. What has happened is that there's a setback. But like I just showed you, there's always setbacks. The messianic process is filled with setbacks. That's the whole point because of all the considerations which, which is what I mentioned, right? That the Jews, you have to satisfy judgment or, you know, or the uh, uh, evil has to have its due. So you can't just rede redeem and destroy evil, you see? Um, and uh, uh, th th there is a proliferation of, of, of evil before. So when God does destroy them, he will have destroyed an incredible, powerful enemy, you see. <clears throat> but what has happened so far, it shouldn't be disheartening for somebody who realizes that the messianic process, right, is two steps forward and one step back. Always, in order to satisfy all these requirements. And like I said, it's very important to do, go slow so people will have credibility. You go too fast, everybody's going to get frightened, and nobody's going to believe this. You see. So this, in many ways, is really what is happening. See. Now, what I, what, what, uh, something which I thought about is why is this happening? And my feeling is that somebody has failed to do his job. Who is that? There's a law in Israel that if nobody has put together a coalition, okay, even after one time, then the president of Israel, who happens to be Rivlin, he is allowed to appoint a person without even asking anybody else and say to that person, I am giving you the right to try to form a coalition. In fact, that law exists in case there's no coalition by any of the parties, you see. But he failed to do that after the first election. Then what did he do? He allowed a second election. You see, and the same thing, it failed. So what he should have done immediately is say, listen, Saar says he can put a coalition, right? You guys failed twice. I'm going to give it over to Saar. But for some incredible reason, he still didn't do it. All he did is force Israel to go to a third election. Now, lest you say, okay, there's a third election. Not only is the country sick of it, right? Do you know what the three elections cost? I will tell you. Okay, the banker, the governor of the Bank of Israel said that he estimates that all three elections cost 10 billion shekel. That's billion, not million. That's approximately three and a half billion dollars. Israel doesn't even have that money. They say they're going to have to raise tax on everybody. You see? So it is incredible to, to, to see where was Rivlin? 
you know, after once, okay, you made the mistake. But after two losses, and now the guy's indicted, you know, and by the way, he got indicted, he had a 21, if I remember correctly, he had a 21-day period after both people failed in the second attempt, right, to give the nod to Saar. Instead, he didn't. He let it pass, even though Netanyahu was indicted. To me, it sounds like it's an incredible failure of this man to exercise his authority in this particular situation. So all he's done, he's put the country through a third election. It's another one and a half billion dollars. It's astounding what this guy's doing, right? And this is the president of Israel, right? And the whole country is again divided. That's all on their mind. And not only that, since there's no government, right, they're surrounded by enemies, they cannot even pass a budget. For what? You see, to me that seems to be really uh, the height of irresponsibility. It's terrible to say, but that's the height of irresponsibility. And the, 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 the state of Israel has been without a government will have been without a government for a year and a half. You know, it's for a country to function without a government for a year and a half. And that's assuming there's going to be a resolution in the third election. But what happens if there isn't? You see? What is it going to do? Go to a fourth election? Could it cost another billion and a half dollars? I think what's happening is to be a rebellion in Israel. They're going to tolerate this nonsense. Out. What? They kick Revlin out? I, I, I mean, it's just astounding to watch. Where are these people? They have the authority to bring about a resolution, and they don't. You know what is to make people pay, and now they're going to raise the taxes? Ten billion shekel? For what? For this nonsense? When they've had the authority, and not only Rivlin, the Knesset could have assigned the guy. If 61 people would have backed Tsar, right, he would immediately become the prime minister. They also have that authority. And the whole reason why the law happened is in case of this scenario. So they failed to do it once. They failed to do it twice, and now they're playing around with a third election. It wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be incredible if again they failed to put a coalition together? That would be interesting. plan to get rid of the government. It's yes. But, well, but hand in hand with what the rebels say. Exactly. He's making so, the government. Well, yeah, yeah. But what is interesting, it's like God is saying to them, you know, listen, you can have all the elections you want, but you're not going to have an Erevrav government. It's over. But uh, hopefully they're going to get the lesson learned or else it's going to, you know, the fifth, uh, fifth election, seventh and eighth election, you know. You know, they're going <laughs> to... To my mind, it is such stupidity. It's beyond belief. Because they could have solved it after the first election, certainly after the second election. But how do you not do it when the, your prime minister is now indicted for three crimes? You know? It's unbelievable, and it's it, it, it just, you know, it, it, to me it resembles a, a, a circus. This is it, it's just a bunch of clowns running the government. It's incredible, you know, especially in a time when there's so many enemy enemies that face Israel, surrounded. They can't put a government, they can't put a budget together. Many laws they can't do because you need a permanent government. They're just, uh, they're just suspended in the air. It's unbelievable. Just clone Trump. What? In Israel, clone Trump. Yes, yeah, yeah. That's right. You need to clone Trump and put him in Israel. Exactly. Israel needs a Trump. That's it. Exactly, you know. But what I'm trying to bring out is that don't be dismayed. This is exactly how the redemption works. Two forward and one back.
So it should be very interesting to see what exactly happens. In any case, so this is the idea which is a very important idea that the gula does not come in a smooth way without any interruptions, without any obstacles. There's always obstacles. And I'm showing you that even in Egypt, and Moshe Rabbeinu was the Mashiach, and God said, you're the man by the burning bush. Even he came to Paroi, and Paroi said to him, no. You see, now imagine what he had to feel. In fact, what's interesting is the Orachim said, uh, in uh, the Orchaim says in, in Perak Dalad and Shemois that why the Rosh mentions that he that uh, Pyro will say no and then in the end he will refuse to let my firstborn and I will tell that and I will kill all the firstborn of Pyro so the Orchaim says why did he tell him the last Makkah now he hadn't even gone to Egypt yet he was at the burning bush so the Orachim says, because had God not told him that, the Moshe Rabbeinu would become disgusted with the whole shlichus, with the whole uh, agency. He said, what is this? And he, in fact, he, even that didn't help, because he came running back to the Moshe and said, what's going on here? But had he not told him the end scenario, don't worry, in the end, he's going to let you guys go, uh, you know. So the Orachim says, because Moshe Rabbeinu would have got disgusted with the whole shlichus and says, this doesn't make sense. This, the Orachim says this, you see. That's what happens, because Moshe Rabbeinu is Mashiach. So how could he be failing again and again and again, you know? In any case, uh, so this really is a very important <coughs> idea, you know, to understand this is a messianic process, and uh, these things are happening in all three uh, major centers. In America, which is the Rosh Be'esov, uh, Rosh Be'esov trying to unseat the Tov which makes sense. I've spoken that extensively. Then you have Iran, which is beginning to collapse. And they are the major terrorist state that sponsors everything. And then you have the Arab Rav. It's just fascinating to watch how all of them are happening simultaneously. And therefore, uh, let's certainly hope that uh, we're going to watch... Don't leave out Europe. What? Don't leave out Europe. In, ter in terms of... Like France is like so slowly destroying itself also. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Oh, yeah, although England, because Boris Johnson has, has some kind of a uh, uh, rejuvenation sort of, you know. But um, France is uh, self-destructing, yeah. Iran said they were going to mourn the loss of the general for three days and then after retaliate. You know, I want to tell you something. You know, they, they, it'll never... They, if they try to retaliate... Yeah. I, I pointed out, I heard that uh, what, what America is doing now is killing the military of, uh, of Iran that are stationed in Iraq. They're killing them. I, I just heard it uh, tonight, uh, you know. It's astounding. So if they have any reason to be mad, they're probably going crazy. And they can't do anything because they realize Trump is not a guy you want to start up with. You know, Trump is not anybody else. He's not Bush. He's not Clinton. He will kill you. He's not Obama. He's Obama. <laughs> That's to compare them is almost sacrilege. The only thing they can work is, do is, is work with the Democrats. What? They can, the only thing they can do is work with the Democrats. Who the uh, Iranians? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Democrats already put forth a bill that Trump is not allowed to do anything without permission from Congress. Uh, any acts of aggression. 
they want to pass a bill that, you know, that tie his hands so that he can't act on his own. Yeah, way. because how dare you not inform us? It's, it's ludicrous. But uh, it's really fascinating to watch. Um, like I say, you know, uh, I think Iran really has problems. They just don't, they really do not know what to do. If they do anything that will take out American lives, Trump is going to retaliate massively. You know, he's not going to just, it's not going to be tit for tat. He's going to wipe out major segments in Iran that you can be sure of, you know. And uh, listen, we're not far. 2030 is not very far off. And things are accelerating at such a speed that you realize this whole thing ultimately really is going to come to an end. And if you think that's a miracle, the real miracle is not even that. The real miracle is what's called the rehabilitation of the Jews. That's the ness. When so many Jews unfortunately are gone, the real miracle is that, you know, because like I said, the Russian will not bring the Mashiach to a nation, his children that are so degraded. Most Jews are gone. Even though it's a dafyomi, you know, and I, I forgot to mention one thing, which my wife told me to mention. I give her the credit that the da, the the, uh, the uh, seum of the daf shas right happened on Wednesday, and when did they kill uh, Soleimani? Thursday. Who knows if the schus of so many Jews finishing shas, where the Rosham said, "Listen, I'm going to take out Iran myself." I'm not even going to have Israel involved at all, which is very good because it spares them lives and ammunition and all that, you know. But I will destroy them. And she's probably right. Who knows what the schus of the Dafyomi is? Well. What? Schus of Hanukkah as well. <coughs> yes, but the, 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 when, when you analyze the juxtaposition, Wednesday was a Dafyomi, right? And Thursday got killed. It's got to be something there, you know, because we don't know what the effect is of a hundred thousand Jews learning and finishing shas. You know, we don't, we do not know what. Today was the finish. No, no, but the seal. I mean, the celebration. That's the pre I'm sure the Bosham says I'm, I'm okay with that. I think he minds, you know. But the, wait, wait, wait. But the, but the, we don't know what the schos is, the merit of tens of thousands of Jews that have uh, finished the shots, you know. Even though they don't remember it, whatever, there's what to say, but the main idea is that they were moist and nefesh. Imagine what it is to get, how does somebody have a commitment for one page a day for seven and a half years? And everybody's got a busy life. You know, there's weddings, there's bar mitzvahs, there's you go out, I mean, it's, it's astounding, and a blot is not easy to finish. You gotta sit there and schwitz, sweat, right? It's not easy to finish. And even if you use the art scroll Talmud, the Gemara, you know, it's a lot of hard work, and so on and so forth. And to do this commitment for seven and a half years is, is, is a mysterious nefesh that I think places the Jewish people at an unbelievable height of merit. And I wouldn't be surprised if that merit will destroy Iran. It's like Haman said, I remember he, he said, you know, what destroyed Haman? The, I think the, uh, the Corbin, the, the, I forgot, it was the Mincha, it was the Kturis, that the Jews offered in the base of Migdash, that destroyed him. 
was that? It was the Mincha. Yeah, what's the Yomer? Yeah. But, uh, so we don't know what the value of these things really are, and so on. But it's, uh, as, as you say, it's very probable that Wednesday was the, uh, that merit, and it was recorded in heaven, and Thursday uh, we destroy Iran. Because this is the beginning of the end of Iran. You know, they won't know, and they're going to make some stupid judgment to kill Americans, and Trump, that's all he needs. I remember just uh, what he once said, Rouhani, uh, president of, uh, of, um, of Iran, said, he came out with some statement against America. Yeah, if they don't do something, we're going to really do some bad against them. So I remember what Trump said. It was, it was, it was an incredible display of threat. Trump said, if you ever say this again, you know, we will visit you with something, I think it was some, a fire and brimstone that the world has never seen before. Do you remember what kind of threat that is? Right. You know, for somebody to say that, you know, and, and, he, and they could do it. We don't even know what, what in the arsenal of America. You know, they've got pulse, pulse bombs and smart bombs and you know that. they got their cruise missiles, you know. But I'm not even talking about the atomic weapons, the hydrogen bombs. I mean, you know, uh, and today, you know, it doesn't take much to destroy a country. Either cybersecurity can do it, cyber, you know, hacking can do it. Uh, remember the Stuxnet? Uh, that, that, it was unbelievable what that did, you know. But also you take out the infrastructure. You bomb the dams, you bomb the hydroelectric plants. And that's the end. You send the guys back to the cavemen. You see? It doesn't take much to destroy the country. And you don't have to kill the people. I think they have a neutron bomb that just kills people and not buildings. You know, they've got all kinds of ways to do this, you know. But, um, and Iran knows that. They, do, they realize who they're playing around with, you know. So I'm sure there's what's called they're burning the midnight oil. And Iran, what do we do to save face? So I really hope they do something stupid. And then Trump just takes them out, you know, and finished with the whole Pasha. Because the messianic process demands, like I said, three things. One is security for Israel, where people will not move there. It demands prosperity, where everybody can make a living, a great living there, so you, don't, you won't resist moving there. And the third thing is Torah, religiosity. The Jews have to come back. And uh, hopefully that will happen in very short order. How do we get them to come back? Yeah. What is the, what is the motive from the side of the evil, so to speak, when their motive to the Jews that they were, that they're the righteous uh, <coughs> nation, that they're the nation of God? And yeah, well, what was. Yeah. See, what you're mentioning is, yeah, but let me give you, let me give, uh, well, first I have to understand that, what's the requirement? When, when evil finally gives up, there are two things that have to happen. You find that by Yaakov Avinu when he fought the Malach, who's the Sultan. Evil has to admit that it was wrong, and that good was right, and the second thing, it has to then disappear. It's not enough for evil to disappear, because then you could have said, well, maybe evil was right, except good was stronger than that. So you have to have what's called a hidor, the admission. And that's exactly what the Malach did. He admitted to Yaakov that you, uh, you know, you uh, uh, defied, you know, Lovin and Yasev and all that, but Tuchal, and you were successful. So the Sultan had to admit that Yaakov Avinu was the right guy for the brachas. Then, 
the Sultan said, okay, now release me and let me go back and so on, you know. Um, so the question is, you know, what does it mean that evil will admit to, to, uh, to good, to the, the, that the world will uh, uh, admit to the Jews and so on? That, that could be at the end of time when the Mashiach comes, you know, when everyone, uh, when everybody will see the, the power of God uh, and they will say, you know, we were wrong, you know, and that you were right and the evil will just be gone. That, that's the end, that's the destruction of the Sultan. Does it also come in stages? Because I think after the seventh Makkah, Paro admitted that. But he continued on his path. <clears throat> that may come in stages, yeah. Well, in a certain sense it does, because there are many nations that were involved in the Holocaust and they apologized. I mean, whatever that means. You know, you don't apologize, by the way, to the living. That's the mistake they make. You know, they killed this guy, so what are they doing apologizing to that guy? You know, but there's obviously no other option, you know. Uh, and the truth is you can't apologize to dead. That's one of the things that you cannot apologize for. But at least at some level, they, did, they do apologize for what they did. So that's the beginning of something. The, the amazing thing about that, it's not stopping anti-Semitism from growing. But I think, that why is that happening? Because God is sending a message to the Americans. This is not your land. You need to come back to Israel, or you need to begin thinking of, you know, going back to Eretz Israel. But the truth is, in order for that to happen, Israel, the state of Israel, has to have become user-friendly. You have to get rid of the bureaucracy, the regulations, you know, the ridiculous, uh, what do you call it, um, uh, socialism aspect of Israel, and make it an incredible place that you could have, you know, uh, the cost of living has to come down. There's so many things that have to happen in Israel. Uh, in order to make Israel a user-friendly country in the sense that now people won't mind going to Israel. Many people go to Israel and they have to come back which is uh, because it's not a, a user-friendly nation. And in the Messianic era, it has to become very easy for a person to pick up and really have a great lifestyle, a spiritual lifestyle in Israel. But for that to happen, you need to get rid of Netanyahu, rid of all these people and put somebody whose real mission is to bring Torah, spirituality, ruchnias back to the Jewish people in Eretz Israel, And also, hopefully, that will filter down to America. That's really what's happened. And that's why we're watching simultaneously, you know, the fall of the era of Rav, you know. And uh, like I say, and, and the rise of Esau, also known as Trump, who has now... Uh, and tshuva and trying to assist the Jews. Uh, anyway. The recent upswing of uh, anti-Semitic incidents. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's the bunch of saying to Klai Israel, you know, this is not your country. Every, you know, the Jews have become so used to living here and it's a great place and so on, you know. But with these rise, although the anti-Semitism in many ways, even though it's, it, well, it's on the rise, it is, no question. You know where it's really on the rise, uh, although it's been dent, a fatal blow, is the college campuses. There is so much hatred of Judaism, of Jews, of Israelis, you know, and there's hatred of religion in general, you know, uh, going on on the college campuses. And the real threat is not so much the people on the campuses, that these are the people who are growing up and will be future American citizens. 
That means all of these people will be bred to hate Jews. It's terrible to watch, uh, you know, what the future can hold and so on, you know. But ultimately, listen, the Bershom says, and even if your exiles are at the ends of heaven, I will gather you and bring you to me. It's a shvur. The Bershom says that in, at the end of Devarim, you know. So we know that no matter where you are, even if you're working on uh, some, you know, even if the Jew is working on uh, Samoa, he's got a grocery store on Samoa Island, you know, the Roshim is going to come and get you. Is it, I think there's a Jew right now in the space station. Is there? Yeah. Sent yeah, a picture. There is, yeah. I sent a picture. Of, of well, guess what? The Roshim is going to get him to, yeah. <laughs> you know, literally. <laughs> and, and that's why it says at the ends of heaven, because this guy's really in the heaven, <laughs> you know. Doesn't make a difference. Even if you're in a satellite, I'm going to come and get you, uh, which is physically and so on, and I'm going to bring you to me, which means that I will bring you back to Ruchnius. The Jews must be returned spiritually, not just physically. And that is going to be the greatest miracle of all. Why? Because that has to happen through Teva. Because the whole messianic process is happening through natural means. So how is the Rebbe going to bring back 11 million Jews that are gone, intermarried, unaffiliated, and assimilated? That we don't even know how, but that will happen, and I hope it will happen shortly. So sit back and watch. Watch the game as all of this is happening. Uh, but it's just amazing to see how it's all coordinated, you know? Enjoy the ride. Yeah, enjoy the ride. <clears throat> what was that? We have our own work. We have to do Well, yeah. I mean, so of course. You know. yeah. Yes, yeah. that's right. You know. Yeah. Okay. Any other questions? Is, um, is there a difference between now and Mitzrayim? In other words, Moshe Rabbeinu was already on the scene as much as Shiach, and he had problems. Yeah. And you seem to indicate that this time around, all the problems will happen before Mitzrayim and Yosef comes. Whereas he will have just complete success one way or another. Is that is that true? Or is, I mean, once Mashiach comes, that that's it. It's all over. Well, no. See, that that's the interesting thing about that. When when Mashiach comes now, it's beitoy. You see, when Moshe Rabbeinu, his idea, his geula was different than our geula. Uh, even though obviously they're both redemptions, his geula was done on through schus, through yisurin. Because the Jews can do the tikkun to mitzvahs, tshuva, and yisurim, uh, commandments, uh, repentance, and suffering. And the Jews had suffered sufficiently where they actually did the tikkun, even though they were at the 49th level of Tumah. You see? But they brought the redemption to the concept of yisurim, you see? But that wasn't really bi'itoi. Be'itoy in its time, Achishenah, I will hasten it, in its time means that there is a deadline that the redemption will come no matter what. And of course, God will make sure that everything that has to happen will happen in terms of uh, exiles, gullus, and so on, you know. But that already uh, will happen. That will happen, have obstacles because that's the concept of Chevli Mashiach. Remember I said that? Right. Birth pangs have the Messiah. What do you mean birth pangs? That's the Chevle Mashiach. Those are the obstacles, the, uh, the deterrence. But ultimately speaking, once the, the Mashiach 
whatever knows who he is and so on uh, then those deterrents will stop and he will be only successful he has to because if he's not successful there's no credibility like I said that's how you know the Ramam says because everything he does must work he never fails which is astounding so therefore it means that's the case there's no obstacles you know See, and, one, and once that is designated that is the Aschat de Gula that is the true beginning of redemption you see but right now you have all kinds of difficulties and obstacles that are happening now so there is a difference even though it says it says that behold I will take you out I will redeem you the last redemption will be just like the first the first redemption was, of course, Egypt. So the second redemption, which is now, will be like the first. So there are an enormous amount of similarities, you know. But uh, like I say, you know, um, eventually uh, there will be no obstacles and it will just run incredibly smooth. But there's a lot of stuff that has to happen, like I say. You know, America, Trump has to reign supreme without the Democrats why because he has to now really allow Israel and help them fulfill the Tikkun you need him there with full power Iran has to be completely dissolved and all its proxies and the air of Rav has to be completely removed what about the 80% of the Jews the what about them the ones that didn't make it in Israel they have to come back well, they have come back. Are we, are we, Gilgal. Yes, I understand. Is the final Gaula, are they going to be Zohar to it, or is there going to be another 80% that's not going to make it? No, they'll be Zohar. What's, what's, the, what's the paradigm? <coughs> You're making the paradigm of, of me trying, and either 80% would have to go, or is in the final Gaula, somehow they're going to make it through? They'll make it through because there's no free will. See, in Egypt, there was free will. No? Whereas in the Beitoy, when God says, I'm going to gather you, guess what? He's not asking you. Right. He's going to get you no matter where you are. That's the, it, it's called absolute authority. There's no Bechira. So what's, you know, so of course not. You know? Okay. That's it. The ongoing saga. Let's hope by Purim something really happens, you know? You know? And it really uh, starts, you know?